Every once in a while, um, you will hear someone lament the idea of bringing children into this sin-filled world. They will say something along the lines of, this world is such a disaster that I would never want to bring a child into it. And of course, the, the world, in its own kind of bizarre way, is affirming this notion. One of the latest buzzwords of apocalyptic meltdown is climate change. That's what I think, too. <laughs> For years, we have been hearing that humans are destroying the planet. Um, and now groups like the Sierra Club and others are working hard to um, guilt the consciences of any person who would dare consider having children. This is an aside, but I, I hope that you understand the agenda. I hope you understand what is happening. The creation mandate is from God himself is fill the earth and subdue it. And these extreme God-hating environmentalists are saying, don't you dare do any such thing. In the day that you fill the earth and subdue it, you will surely die, they say. They're working very hard to portray God as a liar. But usually, it has been my experience that when a person loudly proclaims that they do not want to have children, it's not for a noble cause, like trying to save the planet. Usually, it's just simple selfishness. See, children are, are quick to get in the way of the pursuit of self, the pursuit of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, excuse me, the eyes and the pride of life, right? Now, could there be um, genuine, God-honoring reason to not have children or to not marry? Certainly. But the only reasons that I can think of or that the Scripture speaks of are reasons related to ministry. I'm not talking about those who are unable. I'm talking about choosing not to. So, for example, think of the young seminarian called to the ministry in the jungles of Southeast Asia, where he will pursue the preaching of the gospel to dangerous, unreached peoples. It's possible that that man would not want to marry. Or the nurse, caring for the wounded in some war-torn African nation, putting herself in the danger of infectious diseases or, or worse. It's possible that she would not want to marry. But we would all admit that even the most extreme examples can't really rule out the possibility of marriage and children. We've all heard of the, the missionary family that has given up their lives to serve Christ in some far-flung and, and dangerous region. And how much they've come to love the people there. In fact, this idea of refraining from marriage and having children for the sake of safety is antithetical to the biblical patterns we, we see. Think of Jeremiah's instructions for the exiles, for example. When the people of Israel were, were taken away into captivity in Babylon, the prophet gave them these commands. Jeremiah 29, listen to verses 5 to 7. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Then down in verses 10 to 14 of Jeremiah 29 we read this, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all over the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Even in those times, when the people of Israel were driven from their homes and land and in punishment because of their sin, even, when they were, even then, they were still called to marry and have children, to settle down and lead as normal of lives as possible. The world is telling us these days, wait to marry. Don't have children. Or if you must, have as few as possible. The world will continue to heap shame on those who marry young. Those who marry at 20. You're just so young, they will say. No, they're not. You're actually old. (laughs) If you think that people who get married at 20 are too young, then you... You have no view of the history of humanity. In fact, in the year 2020 in the United States, the birth rate fell by another 4%, which is a record low. And it's now below what, we are, what are known as replacement levels, meaning more Americans die than are being born. This is not a good thing. In fact, no nation can survive that. And one of the major factors in this is that people are waiting to marry and have children much later, which is increasingly becoming the norm. Because we are increasingly believing the message of the world, which is do not fill the earth and don't even think about exercising dominion over it. So while we're on the subject of marriage, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no uh, command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. (coughs) Excuse me. 
and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undevoted, undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, having, uh, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and is, has determined this in his heart to keep her as his, as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's just stop and pray. <clears throat> Lord, this is uh, another difficult passage in this chapter, and so I pray that you would... Um, Give us what we need today, Lord, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly um, through your word this morning that we might um, be conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, is the Apostle Paul saying that even though during the exile... God still required the Israelites to marry and have children, but now in the New Testament, they should not? Is that what Paul is saying? I would argue that he is not. Um, and like I've been saying all along, in order to understand all along as we've studied, especially chapter 7 or 6 and 7, 5, 6, and 7 really, in order to understand the content of Paul's instructions here, we need to we need to remember the context of this passage. And particularly, we need to pay attention and notice verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. The present distress. There's clearly some sort of difficulty facing the church at Corinth that both Paul and his readers, those there in the city of Corinth, in the church, that they understand this. He doesn't explain this present distress. He doesn't elaborate on the present distress. He simply mentions it and then kind of keeps moving. So what is it? What is the difficulty that the church was facing? What is the difficulty that is so bad that he's advising them to remain in their current status? Some think that Paul is referring to the imminent fall of Jerusalem. Others believe that Paul is referring to the second coming of Christ and the distress that the church will face leading up to that. Still others believe that it's, it's possible that, that the apostle Paul was referring to a famine that affected all of the Roman Empire around this time. And there are even others that, that point to some other natural disaster or upheaval that history rec <coughs> records from around this time. 
Well, of those opinions, the second coming of Christ, his return is probably, probably has the most support, both from within and, and outside of the text. But there are certainly some problems with the idea that Christ's return is the present distress that the Corinthians faced. Namely, in, in Scripture, when God's people are under distress, God doesn't ever give them this type of instruction. He always just calls for their trust and obedience in the midst of whatever distress they face. He calls for their faithfulness. The other problem with this view, if, if this is referring to Christ's return, is that why would the Holy Spirit, directing the Apostle Paul writing this letter, why would the Holy Spirit advise these Christians to remain as you are when here we are 2,000 years later and, and we still are awaiting Christ's return? I think it's far more likely that that when referring to the present distress of the Corinthians, Paul is talking about the internal problems of the church. The present distress is, is caused by the issues that they've, that they've reached out to Paul about. Factions and divisions. Sexual sin and, and celebrations of their own graciousness. Fake graciousness, by the way. Lawsuits against one another. Married men are heading into pagan temples to meet up with prostitutes. Not to mention the fact that there are those who would prefer to divorce or, or maybe even remain abstinent within marriage and we're actively trying to force that belief on others in the church. The present distress, I believe, is the mess that the church finds itself in. Paul is addressing. And what's interesting here. Um, is that we could hear of these things, we could hear of the problems of the church. This is another sort of aside for us today. We could hear of the problems of the church that the Corinthian church was facing, and we could assume that these are problems for the elders to sort out. But Paul never tells the elders of the church at Corinth to fix these problems. Paul never tells the elders of the church of Corinth to sort these things out. He tells the entire church to deal with these things. All of these instructions in this letter are written to the entire church, and they would be read publicly. Here's the thing. Christianity, conversion to Christianity, represents an entirely new life. Not only does it mean that you, that you have a new God, right, a new Savior, not only does it mean that, that you have new allegiances and, and a new heart, but it means you have a new family. It means you have new friends. It means you're part of a new people, a new, a new kingdom even. For the Christians in the city of Corinth, their entire lives have been upended by Christ. They've abandoned the pagan religion of the city. And we should assume that this comes with, it means that they've lost family. They've lost friends. They've lost business associates. They've lost business. The, the list could go on and on. But even so, not only that, but their church is a disaster. This place of safety and love and encouragement, their new family are turning on each other. And they're acting very worldly. And so like he did for the married, Paul continues to tell them to, 
just remain as you are, especially in light of this present distress. And so let, let's turn our attention now, as Paul does, to the unmarried. Look at verses 25 to 28. He writes this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, Technically, this word here in verse 25 where he says, the ESV says, now concerning the betrothed, technically the word there is virgins. But it really means those those young people who are still under their parents' authority. They're of marriable age, but not yet married. They're probably connected in some way, but not yet married. In fact, that word betrothed is probably not the best translation because it it often makes us think of, of the word engaged, but it, it doesn't really mean that. And evidently, with all of the upheaval around them in the church, along with this belief by some that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that's what they had said to him in verse 1, there are some of these young people, some in this category here, who were having second thoughts about the direction of their lives. And once again, Paul explains that while Jesus didn't directly speak on this issue during his earthly ministry, that's what he's saying in verse 25, he said, I have no command from the Lord. Jesus didn't speak of this specifically during his earthly ministry. But he goes on to say that that Paul, he, he has equipped Paul in his ministry as an apostle to address these concerns. In fact, Paul says, um, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, along with his extensive knowledge of the Scriptures, the Lord has made Paul trustworthy to address this. And Paul's opinion is this. Because of the present distress in the church, it is good for every person to remain in their present state. He's simply saying here that it would be good if they didn't make any drastic or dramatic changes in their lives at this point. That's pretty much essentially what he is saying. It seems obvious when we look at verse 27 where he says, Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. We need to remember that this is, as Paul is writing this, it's a general principle. It's not a hard and fast rule. He even explains this. Sometimes people will take passages like like this, like these in chapter 7 in particular, they'll they'll take them out of context and they'll then dismiss Paul's writing as irrelevant. Or they will say that he, he contradicts other parts of the Bible or something. But Paul is simply giving them advice on how to best deal with the mess that the Corinthian church finds itself in. And, and verse 28 is really the root of his advice. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. If you decide to marry, even in the midst of the, of the present distress, you're not sinning. Now, it's likely that there were those in Corinth who had been telling these young couples that if they were to wed, they would be in sin. 
Again, think of what they wrote in verse 1. Now let me bring this concept to us because it seems kind of foreign to us. Um, But I do think that there is some pretty timely application here for us, or at least it will help us to understand. Think of the early days of the pandemic, like March, April, and May of 2020. We had no idea what was happening. We had no idea what was going to happen. Imagine if your wedding was scheduled for April of 2020 in a place like, say, New York City. It would have been wise to change plans, right? Maybe even to wait. No matter what we know about the pandemic now, at the time, it may have been wise to put your plans on hold. That's sort of like what Paul is saying here. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's similar to what is happening here in Corinth, except instead of an infestation of a virus that needed to be dealt with, there's an infestation of sin to be dealt with. And and ever the, the realist, the Apostle Paul gives his reasoning. He says that those who are married will face troubles in this life. And that is just simply a fact. Isn't it? It is just a fact. We all know that there are many benefits to marriage. We know that. God himself declared that it is not good for man to be alone, and so he established marriage. But there are also stresses that are magnified during difficult days within a marriage relationship. We've been through these things. You've been through this in your own relationships. Marriage puts two sinful people together in very close proximity in the day-in and day-out struggles of life and all of the difficulties that come with it. And marriage magnifies the sin, doesn't it? Married people face struggles that single people and widows do not face. And Paul just simply wants to spare them that trouble. And now before we let that bother us, that idea of married versus single and widows, we all acknowledge that singles and widows face struggles that married people don't face. But remember the context of this chapter? Remember what Paul is writing to them about? So much of the struggles facing the church at Corinth are wrapped up in sexual immorality. It's rampant in their city. People are coming to that city for that specific purpose. It is infesting the church. In other words, one of the things that Paul is trying to warn or spare them is the heartbreak of possibly dealing with adultery or abandonment in their own future marriages, among other potential troubles that they will face. So here's some practical application. There are those who think that getting married will solve all of their problems. But in reality, marriage brings a whole new and different set of problems, does it not? Every married person agrees whether they're allowed to nod or not. This is just a fact. (laughs) And we can particularly see these things when the time is short. The time is short. Look at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Usually when Paul uses this phrase, the time is short, he's talking about end times. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people think that's what he's talking about here. But when he talks, when Paul talks about Christ's return, he never gives the kind of counsel that he's giving here. For example, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Paul advises the Philippians like this. He says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There is nothing in that passage about refraining from marriage or any other such thing. Or listen to what he tells the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1, he says this, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. (laughs) But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In both cases, when he writes to the Thessalonians or the Philippians, in both cases, when he addresses the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is concerned with their character and not with their marital status. Additionally, there's no other reference in any of the Apostle Paul's letters to this kind of present distress. So we should continue to assume that he's talking about something specific to Corinth. And as he continues here, (laughs) he gives four quick exhortations that prove that the issue is the church. And they also show for us four different types of people within the church. That's what I want us to see here. Four different types of people within the church. The first is that those who believe that marriage or family is ultimate in life. Notice what he says. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's a strange piece of advice from the the Apostle Paul. Paul is not saying here, husbands, ignore your wives as Christ ignores the church. He's not saying that. He can't be saying that. That can't possibly be true. Paul is not giving the opposite advice to this church that he does to the Ephesians, right? Right? In fact, he's already strongly hinted at the fact that marriage is a gift from the Lord. But we also need to remember that marriage is simply (coughs) sorry. Marriage is simply till death do us part. 
Marriage is a relationship that illustrates Christ's love and care for his church. And Paul is saying the church is an absolute mess and must be the priority. The church must take all of your effort during this present distress. Throughout history, at various times of of trials and, and troubles, we have seen men step up and serve the church in order to preserve her and purify her witness. Whether that was during times of intense persecution or times of reformation and we have seen their wives and their children willingly and happily make their own sacrifices to see the church survive and even thrive marriage or family is not the ultimate institution in this life as important as it is it's not the ultimate institution i would argue that the church is as the church continues into the next life. Second, we can also see here uh, those who are trapped by their own emotions. Look at verse 30. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. <laughs> and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Just stop right there. Mourning and rejoicing. There's a couple of different ways to interpret this. Um, We could say the church isn't about entertainment. We believe that. It isn't about feelings. In fact, the church isn't really about you at all. But we should also remember that there were were times, and the Apostle Paul tells us, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. There are times to weep and rejoice. There are times of crisis, for example, that will come along and, and will cause us to be so overwhelmed with grief that we feel like we can't continue. Or maybe there will come times of rejoicing. Uh, Think of times like a wedding or a a new child where we will be so elated that we can't concentrate on the hard work, for example, of church discipline, which is what is so needed here at this church in Corinth. The point is, that Paul is making, is that there is still work to be done. And we cannot let our emotions rule the day or control us. We can't be so bogged down with our own grief that we can't be about the business of the kingdom, of of the church. There's a time to grieve, but there's also a time to put your hand to the plow. There are weeks when, and they don't happen too often, but there are weeks when you preach a sermon, preach a funeral on one day, get up the next day and, and preach the gospel. There are times when we grieve, but there are times when we just need to keep our hand to the plow and move, keep moving forward. Well, third, he addresses those who are so consumed with the stuff of earth. I love that line, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance only to the giver of all good things. It's one of my favorite lines. There are those who are consumed with the stuff of earth. He says, those who buy as though they had no goods. Paul is emphasizing here that the business of the church is more important than your own business. The holiness and the witness of the church is more important than growing your own business or growing your own personal portfolio or however you want to define that. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think that the church has a higher standing than than whatever it is that's the source of your income? 
Now, to be clear, we are called to be industrious. We're called to provide for our families and to be faithful workers. We are called to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But there may be times in the life of a church where that needs to take a back seat while you work on the purity of the church. Of course, starting with your own life. That's what Paul is getting at here. And then finally, Paul addresses those concerned with the things of this world. He said, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And this isn't necessarily about worldliness in that sense, but things like maybe politics or current world events or even just local activities. The present form of this world is passing away and has nothing on the importance of this church, of the church. And as you consider these things, as you think about this, I want you to keep in mind Jesus' words from Luke chapter 14. He said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then finally, and this is going to be really fast. We're going to go through this last section really quickly. We've mostly covered this ground, and the point is pretty easy to see here. But these are really some practical considerations. And the first is for singleness. Let me read verses 32 to 35. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now the thing that we need to remember as we read through that is that when it talks about worldly there, it doesn't mean sinful, not necessarily. He's talking about worldly relationships, relationships with husband and wife, relationships that are God-ordained. So it's important to remember, usually when we hear the word worldly, we think of it in terms of worldliness, right? That's not where he's going with this. The holiness of the church is what, this is the point. The holiness of the church requires the undivided attention of the church. Remember, he's, he's simply saying that those who have been given the gift of singleness or celibacy have certain advantages, namely a lack of family responsibilities. And so they can put in the time and the effort needed for the church. That's all he's saying. And this really is, is what he's saying for this next group as well, the, the betrothed, verse 36. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better." Essentially, he's just saying, just, just be honorable. Be honorable. 
If you can't wait until the present distress has passed, then get married. If you can, then wait. But surely it would go easier for you if you could wait, he's saying. He's telling them to be honorable. And the same is true for widows here in the end, these last couple of verses. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, to believers. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. I love that last line. He obviously does have the Spirit of God. So let me just kind of close by saying this. There's a lot of information there. It's fairly straightforward. But let me just close by saying this. As American Christians, we have not faced distress like all of our brothers and sisters have, or so many of our brothers and sisters have, throughout church history. And as a result, we don't know really what it's like to have to weigh these things, do we? If we meet somebody and want to get married, we get married. And we bless that union. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. But there have been throughout history... Christians who have had to weigh these things really heavily, is it worth it? Is it worth it when my wife and children might be taken from me in order to get me to recant my faith? When they will be persecuted because of my belief in Christ? Several years ago, um, went on an archaeology trip with school and we were in Rome. We took a tour of the catacombs under the city. And in the catacombs under the city, there is uh, literally the, the roots of the underground church. The church met under the city in the tunnels, in the sewer systems, essentially. And there were so many little cubbies, which were the places where the children were buried. Because in the persecution of the early Roman Empire, the early church, the first thing that they would do in order to get parents recant their belief in Christ is they would torture the children. We don't see that in our day. Not like that. These Christians in Corinth were having to weigh some of these things, and Paul is just, he's just telling them, look, it's going to be rough going to be hard for you but we are Christ's and as we see the day drawing near we are probably going to have to consider these things or things like it more and more we will have to teach our kids and our grandkids about the dangers of Christianity they will have to make sacrifices our children and our grandchildren will have to make sacrifices that we never had to face including matters of marriage and family. And because we are Christ's, we should not be slaves to sinful passions or pagan ways of thinking. Because we are Christ's, Paul tells us not, not to become bondservants of men. We are no longer bound to the things of this world that are passing away. We are instead bound to one another in the church and to Christ who purchased us with his own blood. As we read through this passage, and I know that I left a lot out, as we read through this passage, 
Consider the cost of what it means to follow Christ. What it means for you right where you are. Married, single, widowed, engaged, betrothed, somewhere in that continuum. Consider the cost. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about those saints, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. It's so easy to take for granted the freedoms that we have. We can choose our own spouses. We can um, publicly get married as Christians in a, in a church with a Christian minister. We can publicly identify as Christians. We can put signs out in front of our buildings. Lord, I pray that we would not take these things for granted, that we would not be slaves to this world, slaves to our own nation or slaves to our own freedoms, but that we would be slaves only of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to consider the cost of these things, to put the church first, the purity of the church's witness, that we would work in our own lives, in our own families, to purify the witness of the church in our community, in a world that is increasingly hating you, increasingly denigrating families and marriages and children. Fathers, we come to the table this morning to eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We are reminded of that marriage feast of the Lamb from Revelation 19. We long for the day when we can sit at the Father's table, adopted as his children, and rejoice face to face. Father, keep us pure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.